Section 6 of Stories by Foreign Authors, German Authors, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Stories by Foreign Authors, German Authors, Volume 2, by Various. Section 6, Chapter 1, Peter Schlemiel, by Adelbert von Camiso. Chapter 1. After a prosperous, but, to me, very wearisome voyage, we came at last into port. Immediately on landing, I got together my few effects, and squeezing myself through the crowd, went to the nearest and humblest inn, which first met my gaze. On asking for a room, the waiter looked at me from head to foot, and conducted me to one. I asked for some cold water, and for the correct address of Mr. Thomas John, which was described as being by the north gate, the first country house to the right, a large new house of red and white marble with many pillars. This was enough. As the day was not yet far advanced, I untied my bundle and took out my newly turned black coat, dressed myself in my best clothes, and with my letter of recommendation set out for the man who was to assist me in the attainment of my moderate wishes. After proceeding up the north street, I reached the gate, and saw the marble columns glittering through the trees. Having wiped the dust from my shoes with my pocket-handkerchief, and readjusted my cravat, i rang the bell offering up at the same time a silent prayer the door flew open and the porter sent in my name i had soon the honour to be invited into the park where mr john was walking with a few friends i recognised him at once by his corpulency and self-complacent air he received me very well just as a rich man receives a poor devil and turning to me took my letter oh from my brother it is a long time since i heard from him is he well yonder he went on turning to the company and pointing to a distant hill yonder is a site of the new building he broke the seal without discontinuing the conversation which turned upon riches the man he said who does not possess at least a million is a poor wretch oh how true i exclaimed in the fullness of my heart he seemed to be pleased at this and replied with a smile stop here my dear friend afterwards i shall perhaps have time to tell you what i think of this pointing to the letter which he then put in his pocket and turned round to the company offering his arm to a young lady his example was followed by the other gentlemen each politely escorting the lady and the whole party proceeded towards a little hill thickly planted with blooming roses. I followed without troubling any one, for no one took the least further notice of me. The party was in high spirits, lounging about and jesting, speaking sometimes of trifling matters very seriously, and of serious matters as triflingly and exercising their wit in particular 
to great advantage on their absent friends and their affairs. I was too ignorant of what they were talking about to understand much of it, and too anxious and absorbed in my own reflections to occupy myself with a solution of such enigmas as their conversation presented. By this time we had reached the thicket of roses. The lovely Fanny, who seemed to be the queen of the day, was obstinately bent on plucking a rose-branch for herself, and in the attempt pricked her finger with a thorn. The crimson stream, as if flowing from the dark-tinted rose, tinged her fair hand with the purple current. The circumstance set the whole company in commotion, and court plaster was called for. A quiet elderly man, tall and meagre-looking, who was one of the company, but whom I had not before observed, immediately put his hand into the tight breast-pocket of his old-fashioned coat of grey scarce-net, pulled out a small letter-case, opened it, and with a most respectful bow presented the young lady with the wished-for article. She received it without noticing the giver or thanking him. The wound was bound up, and the party proceeded along the hill toward the back part from which they enjoyed an extensive view across the green labyrinth of the park to the wide-spreading ocean. The view was truly a magnificent one. A slight speck was observed on the horizon between the dark flood and the azure sky. A telescope! called out Mr. John, but before any of the servants could answer the summons, the grey man, with a modest bow, drew his hand from his pocket, and presented a beautiful Dolan's telescope to Mr. John, who, on looking through it, informed the company that the speck in the distance was the ship which had sailed yesterday, and which was detained within sight of the haven by contrary winds. The telescope passed from hand to hand, but was not returned to the owner, whom I gazed at with astonishment, and could not conceive how so large an instrument could have proceeded from so small a pocket. This, however, seemed to excite surprise in no one, and the grey man appeared to create as little interest as myself. Refreshments were now brought forward, consisting of the rarest fruits, from all parts of the world, served up in the most costly dishes. Mr. John did the honours with unaffected grace, and addressed me for the second time, saying, "'You had better eat. You did not get such things at sea.' I acknowledged his politeness with a bow, which, however, he did not perceive, having turned round to speak with someone else. The party would willingly have stopped some time here on the declivity of the hill to enjoy the extensive prospect before them had they not been apprehensive of the dampness of the grass. "'How delightful it would be!' exclaimed someone, "'if we had a turkey carpet to lay down here.' The wish was scarcely expressed when the man in the grey coat put his hand in his pocket, and with a modest and even humble air, pulled out a rich turkey carpet embroidered in gold. The servant received it as a matter of course, and spread it out on the desired spot, and without any ceremony the company seated themselves on it. Confounded by what I saw, 
I gazed again at the man. His pocket and the carpet, which is more than twenty feet in length and ten in breadth, and rubbed my eyes, not knowing what to think, particularly as no one saw anything extraordinary in the matter. I would gladly have made some inquiries respecting the man, and asked who he was, but knew not to whom I should address myself, for I felt almost more afraid of the servants than of their master. At length I took courage, and stepping up to a young man, who seemed of less consequence than the others, and who was more frequently standing by himself, I begged him in a low tone to tell me who the obliging gentleman was in the grey cloak, that man who looks like a piece of thread just escaped from a tailor's needle? Yes, he who is standing alone yonder. I do not know, was the reply, and to avoid, as it seemed, any further conversation with me, he turned away and spoke of some commonplace matters with a neighbor. The sun's rays, now being stronger, the ladies complained of feeling oppressed by the heat, and the lovely Fanny, turning carelessly to the gray man, to whom I had not yet observed that any one had addressed the most trifling question, asked him if, perhaps, he had not a tent about him. He replied with a low bow, as if some unmerited honor had been conferred upon him, and putting his hand in his pocket, drew from it canvas, poles, cord, iron, in short, everything belonging to the most splendid tent for a party of pleasure. The young gentleman assisted pitching it, and it covered the whole carpet, but no one seemed to think that there was anything extraordinary in it. I had long secretly felt uneasy, indeed almost horrified, but how was this feeling increased at the next wish expressed? I saw him take from his pocket three horses. Yes, Adelbert, three large, beautiful steeds, with saddles and bridles out of the very pocket whence had already issued a letter-case, a telescope, a carpet twenty feet broad and ten in length, and a pavilion of the same extent, with all its appurtenances. Did I not assure thee that mine own eyes had seen all this, thou wouldst certainly disbelieve it. This man, although he appeared so humble and embarrassed in his air and manners, and passed so unheeded, had inspired me with such a feeling of horror by the unearthly paleness of his countenance, from which I could not avert my eyes, that I was unable longer to endure it. I determined, therefore, to steal away from the company, which appeared no difficult matter, from the undistinguished part I acted in it. I resolved to return to the town, and pay another visit to Mr. John the following morning, and at the same time make some inquiries of him relative to the extraordinary man in the grey, provided I could command sufficient courage. Would to heaven that such good fortune had awaited me! I had stolen away safely down the hill through the thicket of roses, and now found myself on an open plain, but fearing lest I should be met out of the proper path, crossing the grass, 
I cast an inquisitive glance around, and started as I beheld the man in the gray cloak advancing toward me. He took off his hat, and made me a lower bow than mortal had ever favored me with. It was evident that he wished to address me, and I could not avoid encountering him without seeming rude. I returned his salutation, therefore, and stood bareheaded in the sunshine as if rooted to the ground. I gazed at him with the utmost horror, and felt like a bird fascinated by a serpent. He affected himself to have an air of embarrassment. With his eyes on the ground, he bowed several times, drew nearer, and at last, without looking up, addressed me in a low, hesitating voice, almost in the tone of a suppliant. "'Will you, sir?' excuse my importunity in venturing to intrude upon you in so unusual a manner i have a request to make would you most graciously be pleased to allow me hold for heaven's sakes i exclaimed what can i do for a man who i stopped in some confusion which he seemed to share after a moment's pause he resumed during the short time i have had the pleasure to be in your company i have permit me sir to say beheld with unspeakable admiration your most beautiful shadow and remarked the air of noble indifference with which you at the same time turned from the glorious picture at your feet as if disdaining to vouchsafe a glance at it excuse the boldness of my proposal but perhaps you would have no objection to sell me your shadow he stopped while my head turned round like a mill-wheel. What was I to think of so extraordinarily a proposal? To sell my shadow? He must be mad, thought I, and assuming a tone more in character with the submissiveness of his own, I replied, My good friend, are you not content with your own shadow? This would be a bargain of a strange nature indeed. I have in my pocket, he said, many things which may possess some value in your eyes. For that inestimable shadow, I should deem the highest price too little. A cold shuddering came over me as I recollected the pocket, and I could not conceive what it induced to me to style him good friend, which I took care not to repeat, endeavoring to make up for it by studied politeness i now resumed the conversation but sir excuse your humble servant i am at a loss to comprehend your meaning my shadow how can i permit me he exclaimed interrupting me to gather up the noble image as it lies on the ground and take it into my possession as to the manner of accomplishing it leave that to me in return and as evidence of my gratitude i shall leave you to choose among all the treasures i have in my pocket among which are a variety of enchanting articles not exactly adapted for you who i am sure would like better to have the wishing cap of fortunatus all made new and sound again and a lucky purse which also belonged to him fortunatus's perch cried i and great was my mental anguish with that one word he had penetrated the deepest 
recesses of my soul a feeling of giddiness came over me and double ducats glittered before my eyes be pleased gracious sir to examine this purse and make a trial of its contents he put his hand in his pocket and drew forth a large strongly stitched bag of stout cordovan leather with a couple of strings to match and presented it to me i seized it took out ten gold pieces then ten more and this i repeated again and again instantly i held up my hand to him done said i the bargain is made my shadow for the purse agreed he answered and immediately kneeling down i beheld him with extraordinary dexterity gently loosen my shadow from the grass lift it up fold it together and at last put it in his pocket he then rose bowed once more to me and directed his steps toward the rose bushes i fancied i heard him quietly laughing to himself however i held the purse fast by the two strings the earth was basking beneath the brightness of the sun but i presently lost all consciousness on recovering my senses i hastened to quit a place where i hoped there was nothing further to detain me i first filled my pockets with gold then fastened the strings of the purse around my neck and concealed it in my bosom i passed unnoticed out of the park gained the high road and took the way to town as i was thoughtfully approaching the gate i heard someone behind me exclaiming young man young man you have lost your shadow i turned and perceived an old woman calling after me thank you my good woman said i and throwing her a piece of gold for her well-intended information i stepped under the trees at the gate again it was my fate to hear the sentry inquiring where the gentleman had left his shadow and immediately i heard a couple of women exclaiming jesu maria the poor man has no shadow all this began to depress me and i carefully avoided walking in the sun but this could not everywhere be the case for in the next broad street i had to cross and unfortunately for me at the very hour in which the boys were coming out of school a humpbacked loud of a fellow i see him yet soon made the discovery that i was without a shadow and communicated the news with loud outcries to a knot of young urchins the swarm proceeded immediately to reconnoitre me and to pelt me with mud people they cried are generally accustomed to take their shadows with them when they walk in the sunshine in order to drive them away i threw gold by handfuls among them and sprang into a hackney coach which some compassionate spectators sent to my rescue as soon as i found myself alone in the rolling vehicle i began to weep bitterly i had by this time a misgiving that in the same degree in which gold in this world prevails over merit and virtue by so much one shadow excels gold and now that i had sacrificed my conscience for riches and given my shadow in exchange for mere gold what on earth would become of me as the coach stopped at the door of my late inn 
I felt much perplexed, and not at all disposed to enter so wretched an abode. I called for my things, and received them with an air of contempt, threw down a few gold pieces, and desired to be conducted to a first-rate hotel. This house had a northern aspect, so that I had nothing to fear from the sun. I dismissed the coachman with gold, asked to be conducted to the best apartment, and locked myself up in it as soon as possible. Imagine, my friend, what I then set about. Oh, my dear Camiso, even to thee I blush to mention what follows. I drew the ill-fated purse from my bosom, and in a sort of frenzy that raged like a self-fed fire within me, I took out gold, 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 more and more, till I strewed it on the floor, trampled upon it, and feasting on its very sound and brilliancy, added coins to coins, rolling and revelling on the gorgeous bed, until I sank exhausted. Thus passed away that day and evening, and as my door remained locked, night found me still lying on the gold, where at last sleep overpowered me. Then I dreamed of thee, and fancied I stood behind the glass door of thy little room, and saw thee seated at thy table between a skeleton and a bunch of dried plants. Before thee lay open the works of Haller, Humboldt, and Linnaeus, on thy sofa a volume of Goethe, and the enchanted ring. I stood a long time contemplating thee, and everything in thy apartment. And again, turning my gaze upon thee, I perceived that thou wast motionless. Thou didst not breathe. Thou wast dead. I awoke. It seemed very early. My watch had stopped. I felt thirsty, faint, and worn out, for since the preceding morning I had not tasted food. I now cast from me with loathing and disgust the very gold with which, but a short time before, I had satiated my foolish heart. Now I knew not where to put it. I dared not leave a line there. I examined my purse to see if it would hold it. Impossible. Neither of my windows opened on the sea. I had no other resources but with toil and great fatigue, to drag it to a huge chest which stood in a closet in my room, where I placed it all, with the exception of a handful or two. Then I threw myself exhausted into an armchair till the people of the house should be up and stirring. As soon as possible I sent for some refreshment and desired to see the landlord. I entered into some conversation with this man, respecting the arrangement of my future establishment. He recommended for my personal attendant one Bindel, whose honest and intelligent countenance immediately prepossessed me in his favor. It is this individual whose persevering attachment has consoled me in all the miseries of my life, and enabled me to bear up under my wretched lot. I was occupied the whole day in my room, with servants in want of a situation, and tradesmen of every description. I decided on my future plans, and purchased various articles of vertu and splendid jewels, in order to get rid of some of my gold. But nothing seemed to diminish the inexhaustible heap. 
i now reflected on my situation with the utmost uneasiness i dared not take a single step beyond my own door and in the evening i had forty wax tapers lighted before i ventured to leave the shade i reflected with horror on the frightful encounter with the schoolboys yet i resolved if i could command sufficient courage to put the public opinion to a second trial the nights were now moonlight late in the evening i wrapped myself in a large cloak pulled my head over my eyes and trembling like a criminal stole out of the house i did not venture to leave the friendly shadow of the houses until i had reached a distant part of the town and then i emerged into the broad moonlight fully prepared to hear my fate from the lips of the passers-by spare me my beloved friend the painful recital of all that i was doomed to endure the women often expressed the deepest sympathy for me a sympathy not less piercing to my soul than the scoffs of the young people and the proud contempt of the men particularly of the more corpulent who threw an ample shadow before them a fair and beauteous maiden apparently accompanied by her parents who gravely kept looking straight before them chanced to cast a beaming glance on me but was evidently startled at perceiving that i was without a shadow and hiding her lovely face in her veil and holding down her head passed silently on this was past all endurance tears streamed from my eyes and with a heart pierced through and through i once more took refuge in the shade i leaned on the houses for support and reached home at a late hour worn out with fatigue i passed a sleepless night my first care the following morning was to devise some means of discovering the man in the grey cloak perhaps i may succeed in finding him and how fortunate were if he should be as ill-satisfied with his bargain as i am with mine i desired brindell to be sent for who seemed to possess some tact and ability i minutely described to him the individual who possessed a treasure without which life itself was rendered a burden to me i mentioned the time and place at which i had seen him named all the persons who were present and concluded with the following directions he was to inquire for a dolan's telescope a turkey carpet interwoven with gold a marquee and finally for some black steeds the history without entering into particulars of all these being singularly connected with the mysterious character who seemed to pass unnoticed by every one but whose appearance had destroyed the peace and happiness of my life as i spoke i produced as much gold as i could hold in my two hands and added jewels and precious stones of still greater value mendel said i this smooths many a path and renders that easy which seems almost impossible be not sparing of it for i am not so but go and rejoice thy master with intelligence on which depend all his hopes he departed and returned late and melancholy none of mr john's servants none of his guests 
and Bindell had spoken to them all, had the slightest recollection of the man in the grey cloak. The new telescope was still there, but no one knew how it had come, and the tent and turkey carpet were still stretched out on the hill. The servants boasted of their master's wealth, but no one seemed to know by what means he had become possessed of these newly acquired luxuries. He was gratified. It gave him no concern to be ignorant how they had come to him. The black coursers which had been mounted on that day were in the stables of the young gentlemen of the party, who admired them as a munificent present of Mr. John. Such was the information I gained from Bindell's detailed account. But in spite of this unsatisfactory result, his zeal and prudence deserved and received my commendation. In a gloomy mood I made him a sign to withdraw. "'I have, sir,' he continued, "'laid before you all the information in my power relative to the subject of the most importance to you. I now have a message to deliver.' which I received early this morning from a person at the gate as I was proceeding to execute the commission in which I have so unfortunately failed. The man's words were precisely these. Tell your master, Peter Schlemiel, he will not see me here again. I am going to cross the sea. A favorable wind now calls all the passengers on board. But in a year and a day, I shall have the honor of paying him a visit, when in all probability I shall have a proposal to make to him of a very agreeable nature. Commend me to him most respectfully, with many thanks. I inquired his name, but he said you would remember him. What sort of a person was he? cried I in great emotion, and Bindell described him as the man in the gray coat, feature by feature, word for word in short the very individual in search of whom he had been sent how unfortunate cried i bitterly it was himself scales as it were fell from bindell's eyes yes it was he cried he undoubtedly it was he and fool madman that i was i did not recognize him i did not and i have betrayed my master he then broke out into a torrent of self-reproach, and his distress really excited my compassion. I endeavored to console him, repeatedly assuring him that I entertained no doubt of his fidelity, and dispatched him immediately to the wharf to discover, if possible, some trace of the extraordinary being. But on that very morning many vessels which had been detained in port by contrary winds, had set sail, all bound to different parts of the globe, and the gray man had disappeared like a shadow. End of Section 6, Chapter 1, Peter Schlemiel, by Adalbert von Camiso.